This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. This is Mental Health Moments, the podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers and sharing your stories. Brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe, and brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Now, this podcast, in my view, is designed to share as many stories of as many people as humanly possible and really delve into mental health and the impact it has on individuals and on society, for that matter. Now, one thing that has been constant throughout the evolution of speaking openly about mental health is that many of us just really want to work towards acceptance and understanding of those suffering through mental illnesses. And a word that we long for is compassion. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate it. With that said, there's a wonderful organization dedicated to compassion in its fullest form, Compassion First. Joining me today is the founder and leader of Compassion First, Sarah Jamil. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Phil, for having me. Okay, so right out of the gate, what is Compassion First? An organization that focuses on empowering women and girls specifically in increasing their self-awareness and personal agency through compassion. So we're using compassion as the driving force in empowering people. I'll use the word people because um, we're expanding. I started off with women and girls, um, but we're understanding the importance of families and the dynamic dynamics that go on in our relationships. So we basically want to bring compassion to the forefront of every interaction that we have with our various relationships um, in our life. And we do that through education, so uh, providing workshops, retreats, and we're also actually primarily a partner of a global organization called the Charter for Compassion which I will share more about. Okay, and before we get into the Charter of Compassion, because I certainly want to, I understand you have an event coming up shortly. Can you tell us about that? Yes, we do. I've teamed up with four other women here in our York region, specifically Richmond Hill, Vaughan, and Thornhill. And during the pandemic, and prior to that, but pandemics more certainly speeded up the process, we uh, all felt a need for bringing a platform in place in our community that increases the sense of belonging for everyone. And so although our community has amazing initiatives going on already to alleviate suffering in the community, we, we want to look further ahead and say, what is it that we still need to be doing? So in order to do that, on September 23rd, we're doing a sort of a soft launch. We're inviting community members in to create conversations around the possibility of being a compassionate community. And this is a York region-wide initiative. You know, the question we get is, who is this geared towards? Basically, we're, we're asking all sectors of our community because we don't believe in pointing fingers at, oh, it's so-and-so's responsibility. We want people to get together who sincerely believe that we all have a responsibility to take care of each other. And we all have a voice um, and we matter. So we're asking people in the arts sector, in the business sector, co-governance sector, in the education sector, environment sector, 
We have healthcare sector, even the uh, interfaith, like religion, spirituality sector, social justice, um, social services, sorry, and science and research. We want to cast the net as wide, invitation as wide as possible because we believe we all need to join hands. September 23rd is our first conversation of many. This is an exploration and an inquiry, and we'd like to bring people into dialogue here. When I started doing um, work within the field of compassion is there's a hesitancy um, in society with the word compassion. It's very abstract and fuzzy for a lot of people, and we don't understand what it is. Um, and I'm a huge advocate for really explaining that compassion is, people call it a soft skill. I call it a harder skill. It's in fact harder. Soft skill because it's hard to measure. Everything is measured in society today. And if it's not measurable, then we go, okay, we'll wait with that. I'll share a quote with you by the founder of the Charter for Compassion, Karen Armstrong. Um, she, she said, compassion is not an option anymore. It's the key to our survival. So if we look at compassion as a dynamic force that can be used, if we bring that in the forefront of any and all action that we're doing, then our perspective changes. Uh, we start having more hope. The fear diminishes because we start seeing possibilities. So what our group wants to do and what the Charter for Compassion wants to do with these compassionate community initiatives is to show people there is another model here. We don't have to remain in the existing model or system or the way of doing things. Let's look at what else is possible. Perhaps this is a broad question, but how, how do we instill compassion in others? You know, we can say that we want people to be more compassionate and that we're spreading the word of compassion first and, and leading with compassion. How do we get that ingrained in other people that they, they too are becoming more compassionate? Very, very good question. It is a broad question, but actually this is the question I sat with when I founded Compassion First. Usually when you see, when you see commercials or ads or requests for people to do something, it's always you. You, you know, it's, it's a pointing, I like to use the hand, it's when you're pointing a finger towards others, even inviting them in, you have three fingers pointing back at you. So I like to say a better world starts with me. I take the responsibility, so I need to know, how do I practice compassion with myself? What is my understanding of it, and how do I practice it with myself? Once I do that, I will have this open channel of being able to com practice compassion with others. It was easier for me to practice compassion towards others because I was trained in this faith background or... Um, you know, the initiatives I've been uh, involved with, it was always look at others and, you know, help out, alleviate suffering. So that was not so foreign to me. What was foreign uh, to me was when I was experiencing personal challenges, specifically severe seven, eight years ago, and that's actually when I discovered compassion. It was how do I alleviate my own suffering? Hence, it, it aligns with, you know, what you're hosting here, the mental health emotional well-being. What do, how, how can I do this? So once I learned how to become compassionate to myself, my, my compassion to others amplified.
There, there's a lot to unpack there, but something that I took out of it, and perhaps I, I've read into something differently than you meant it to be conveyed, but what I took from that was compassion is something that you can direct inward and feel compassionate towards yourself. It makes you more compassionate to others. And I'd imagine similar to what happens in, let's say, a Tim Hortons drive through where someone pays for the order behind them and so on, it becomes a, a, a snowball effect, a domino effect of if I'm compassionate to someone, they in turn will be compassionate to others. And that's kind of the goal here, right, is to expand everyone into more compassionate nature. Absolutely. I love using the analogy of the butterfly effect. For me, it's the butterfly effect of compassion. Why? Because we know one thing. We know our thoughts, feelings, actions have an impact. Okay. Whether it's positive or negative, it has an impact on those around us or on our surroundings. Imagine what, that's like unconsciously, we don't even know it, but it does. What, What would happen, imagine, if we became very aware of it, and then I, me going out and doing something, I know that maybe I won't see the direct result in front of me right now, but I know my every my, my, every fiber of my being, whatever I'm engaging in, my intention is it must have a positive effect on someone else. That effect, that act of kindness, even the paying for the coffee, you don't know what, you know, you don't know what that person behind you has gone through or what that your act will spark in that other person to pay it forward. It's an open invitation, but you are the one opening that invitation and the person behind you may act on it to, at some point towards someone else. It could be not paying for the coffee, but it could be something else later on in the day because they remember what you did for them. So you're leaving an impact. So it absolutely is to start ripples. And, and that's why starting at the grassroots level, starting at the individual level, but then grassroots is so important. And that's what the focus of uh, compassionate communities and cities is. It is to mobilize the grassroots level efforts. And you really show these are important. Without them, nothing is sustainable. We're not looking at a quick fix here. We're looking at a sustainable solution to a better world. We can only do that if we uh, uh, invite everyone to the table. I I took a look at the charterofcompassion.org website. And uh, according to the website, there's countries involved in this, including Armenia, Tanzania, excuse me, Botswana, the Republic of Djibouti even. They're all participating in this charter, but I'd be lying if I said I knew about the Charter of Compassion before connecting with you for this interview. So how do we get people involved in this and how do we spread the word? Is it through conversations just like this? It is a part of that. Um, Because this is spread by word of mouth at the Charter for Compassion, we rely heavily on uh, ambassadors. I got sparked by a, a Super Soul Sunday interview with Karen Armstrong, um, like Oprah's Super Soul Sunday um, interview with Karen Armstrong. I had never heard of it, and this was in 2013. The charter was launched in 2009. You know, I got curious, what is this? And I started looking into it. I find that I affirmed the charge of compassion. Uh, people will be able to go on the website and be guided into, you know, the various things that we do there. And it struck a chord with me and it, it sparked a desire for me to keep spreading it at my level. I knew this would take time. And so I started having conversations wherever, uh, wherever I went, whether it was um, 
as a school council chair, uh, school school volunteer, um, you know, with with my friends, with my family, uh, wherever I go, I would weave the comp- charter for compassion into my conversations, and that slowly sparked interest from friends to look into it. So it is an open invitation for over 400 communities and cities in 54 plus countries have joined this movement. It is a movement. So a movement is something that's going to continuously grow. It evolves organically. And that's what the Charter um, um, wants to do. That's the mission. Sarah Jamel, you are the founder of Compassion First and a volunteer with the Charter of Compassion. I just want to thank you for taking the time with me today. But before I let you go, I have a tradition on this show. If there's someone out there that's listening to this right now that's struggling through mental health concerns or some kind of mental illness, what would you like them to know? I'd like them to know that they are not alone. We are all interconnected. We all share a common humanity. We all share these struggles. Uh, some more than others, but we're all here together. And please don't lose hope. We are here. We just need to open our eyes and arms towards each other. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been just an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you very, very much. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful. Until next time, I'll close with You Are Loved. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. I was out on my usual mid-morning stroll along the beach. Typically, I just daydream. But today I paid a bit more attention to those around me. They were all ages, many of them seniors who looked reasonably fit, healthy, and full of energy. I couldn't help but think of what their lives were like when they were kids, playing hide-and-seek, riding bikes for hours on end. And then I thought about kids today. I noticed less outside play. Too many people stare at a screen and don't even see what's around them. And not only kids, adults too. But as I look around, I also see hope. I get the feeling more people realize they need to get off the couch, away from their computer screens, and do something active. And I know, here in White Rock, the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation is contributing to that effort. This is The Power to Heal. In this series of podcasts, we'll focus on the many innovative ways the Peace Arch Hospital has been an integral part of its community. We'll talk to those who were instrumental in creating new initiatives for the hospital to grow and evolve along with the town it serves. In this episode, we'll take a look at a program called Move for Life. It's an initiative developed to minimize the need for hospital visits through active lifestyles. You'll be surprised by the difference even a little bit of regular activity can make. We called on longtime White Rock resident and veteran television and radio broadcaster Wayne Cox. Wayne is familiar with the Peace Arch Hospital and many of its programs. He helps us understand more about the various programs offered by the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation. Today, Wayne speaks with Drew Mitchell, who manages the Move for Life program. They discuss the concept of physical literacy, a term that has far-reaching implications for all ages. Drew, can you give us an overview of the program? What does it entail? Thank you, Wayne. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity. The Move for Life project, which is located in South Surrey, White Rock, 
is a very innovative program funded by the Peace Arch Hospital Foundations. And just to let you know, hospital foundations don't usually do this. They usually build stuff and buy stuff. They don't usually do proactive stuff in the community. So it's quite an innovative step by the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation in this case. But it's focused on developing physical literacy in the citizens on the peninsula and to increase physical activity over their lifetime. Cradle to grave, little kids through to moms to older adults and helping them get a better understanding to be more confident movers and move more often. Now you talk about physical literacy. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a term that's been around for a little over 100 years, first coined by the Army Corps of Engineers in the U.S. late 1800s, early 1900s. As soon as innovation came along, so the creation of the automobile, the creation of the computer chip, it sort of made people question the idea that it was going to challenge the physical literacy of the population because it was going to change the amount of work we did and the amount of movement that we made. So physical literacy really, by definition, is the competence or ability, confidence, motivation, knowledge, and understanding to value movement over your lifetime. When we were kids, Wayne, as an example, when we tore off with our friends and were gone for the day and climbing trees and making up games and not having adults telling us what to do, a lot of our physical literacy was really nurtured organically. You know, we learned how to do stuff by our older siblings, by our friends, and it was uh, trial and error, you, you name it, right? And, and it was uh, yeah. sometimes to our detriment, but generally it was something that was, you know, in a community, you could do that. You could roam. You know, you were like a free-range chicken. You could just kind of go wherever you wanted to go. Today, the difficulty is, is that adults, for the most part, mostly parents, have really restricted a child's movement. And then as we've aged, we've started to move less. And so inactivity-based disease is now becoming one of the number one killers of our population. Wow. Immediately when you said about childhood, I, I flash back on what we used to do. We, we would call them bike hikes, yeah, where mom would pack us a sandwich <laughs> and off we'd go and she'd be waving. And we'd, we'd ride our bikes from, from Dunbar to West Vancouver over the Lionsgate Bridge yeah. and back again. And, and the only caution was you'd be home before the streetlights come Exactly. On, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, those were the days. But uh, as you say... Um, it's a different world now. You you wouldn't, I don't think a parent would, would allow a child to jump on their bike and, and go over the Lionsgate Bridge to West Vancouver and spend the day. Certainly not at the age we were doing it at, for sure. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Now, this program, you said, uh, you know, from cradle to grave. So there must be a number of different tailor-made specific exercises and programs for the various ages, correct? Yeah. So what we're doing is we're trying to meet everybody where they're at. So Rather than trying to create a, an out-of-the-box, one-size-fits-all kind of piece, what we're doing is we're taking a sector approach. So we're working with our primary activity sectors, schools, recreation department, sport clubs, and the health authority. Those are all organizations that are focused on having some component of physical activity in whatever they do. You know, we'll also engage other early child care and so on. So in South Surrey, White Rock, as an example, we work very closely with School District 36. So with School District 36, we're targeted on elementary schools, kindergarten to grade seven. And we have, uh, up until COVID, we actually had a, what we call a physical literacy mentor teacher. 
And what she would do is she would go into identified schools who had joined in on the project with us, and she would provide support for the generalist teacher who was providing activities for the, usually through physical education, to the kids in the day. Because in schools in South Surrey, White Rock, there are no physical education specialists in the elementary school model. Hmm. So a lot of these teachers have very limited knowledge around being able to teach phys ed, you know, really well. And we're not only taking approach to phys ed, we're also, how do we build movement for kids over the whole school day? How do we build movement into the classroom? How can we make recess and lunch effective for them? Because there's some kids that just go and plop themselves down and they don't move anywhere, right? Hmm. And so it's a culture of movement. It's, it's helping kids in particular when we're focused on kids and helping them break down some of those barriers, build some confidence so they become more confident movers and hopefully become active for life. You're really dealing with lifestyle here, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Like it's become that, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, as I was mentioning earlier, a lot of parents who are putting up barriers for kids to move on a regular basis, part of the challenge there is we have almost surplus safety happening. You know, there's a fear that someone's going to take my child or hurt my child. The statistics really don't bear that out, Wayne. It, it, they just don't. And so we've probably gone a little too far one way. And because of that, we've really stunted many young people's love of moving. You know, because again, when we were roaming around as kids, we really enjoyed what we were doing. We were engaged and we had the, more so than anything, we had the opportunity to do it. So now opportunities tend to have to be programmed. You know, it's either delivered through the rec center and, you know, and, and it may be for an older adult, so maybe pickleball or something like that. And so we're, we're working with the recreation department now in developing some innovative programming and more so than any, helping those four main sectors work together better. So how can schools and the recreation department work better together? How can sport clubs support sport delivery in the school and so on? So it's it's been a really interesting process because there's been a real openness to doing this and to doing this this way. We have some really good partners at the table. The community has embraced this program. Then. They have. And, you know, our goal is a five-year project. Our goal from the beginning was to try and engage up to a third of the population. We estimated the population at around 100, 110,000 people in the peninsula. It may have gone up since then. But, you know, we were focused on about 33,000 people with, you know, reach and stuff like we're doing right now to help people get a better knowledge and understanding of what's going on, because a lot of people don't know what they don't know. As we'll quickly learn, it's not just the kids who benefit from the Move for Life program. As you also know, we have a very large older population in the community, so we've been very involved with the chronic disease management program that was uh, available at the Centre for Active Living. And again, COVID's put a lot of that, it's really changed a lot of that (laughs) dynamic. But, you know, we were getting people who were frequent users of the hospital eMERGE department to not be going to the eMERGE department anymore. They were, mm-hmm. being, they were being supported and helped and, and able to get their quality of life improving enough so that they don't have to visit the hospital on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So, like you say, there's layers of this all over the place. And as we continue to evolve, the Hospital Foundation has been an excellent excellent supporter to being innovative and to trying different things. You know, I, I went through a three stents procedure and I was told, well, you have to rehabilitate, you know, you got to get, got to get things going. And uh, I always had in my mind, you know, you you think of a gym 
well, you think of these big guys and they're, you know, yeah. throwing giant weights around. Yeah. But the program I was in, very lightweight, a lot of cardio, you know, uh, treadmill, yeah. bicycles, that kind of thing. And uh, it got to be where I was looking forward to each time I would go, you know, and I think maybe there's a bit of a stumbling block there that people have in their minds that, oh, I don't want to go to a gym because I'm not a great big bodybuilder. Yeah. But in actual fact, there are lots of different apparatus. It's not going to kill you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know and, and you're, you're right, Wayne. The, the, the gym is not the purview of the muscle head only. And the Center for Active Living is a really interesting, you know, example of they have lots of really good equipment. You know, are they going to have 110-pound dumbbells? Probably not. You know, that's, no. <laughs> uh, you know, that's probably not going to happen. But, you know, what I sense about your going to that uh, organized exercise rehab session was it's very social. Well, yeah. And that's one of the biggest things in physical literacy. When we look at, we think of physical activity all the time. And, and I use physical activity as an overarching term to encompass sport, exercise, dance, all those things that when we move physically. And the interesting thing is, is that we've always thought of just the physical aspect, but not so much the, what we call the effective domain, which is the psychological, emotional, and cognitive components. Right. Mm. And so are we creating activities that are confidence building so that they're reasonably challenging, but not too hard, right? Cause if we make it too hard. You're going to fail a few times, walk away. Mm-hmm. And if it's too easy, you're going to get bored and not hang around. So, you know, it, it's important that when we do set up programs that they are customized and effective for the individual, that they have an entry point that people can understand and relate to and that they gain you know, a sense of community in what they're doing because social connection is so important. Mm. You know, whether it's kids or youth or older adults, everybody wants to be part of something. Yeah. And it's a really important component in our program. We actually had a graduation day when someone... There you go. (laughs) When when someone finished the program and got a little diploma and everybody applauded and it was really very social and a lot of fun. Yeah. How has COVID impacted the program? Yeah, pretty much stopped at dead in its tracks. Um, So, you know, cardiac rehab, chronic disease management programs, all of these had to pivot. And pivot was the magic word. In our case, one of the first things they said around COVID is we have to protect the older adults. So Mm. pretty much we haven't had access to any of the older adult populations in the communities for over a year. Um, Now that's, you know, we're coming out of the end of the tunnel now and things are changing a bit, which is great. And and the COVID numbers, Bonnie Henry, bless her heart, you know, are, are starting to really track down. So I'm optimistic that we're going to see something that looks like normal, Wayne, and that's going to change things. But yeah, like recreation departments starting to deliver online. But interestingly enough, when they did that, it actually picked up a whole group of people who weren't coming into their centers before. Oh. So now you have a you have an additional audience. Well, you know, these people, they haven't been part of our programs before. So it's COVID's really done a lot of things. It's forced the online stuff. It's it's forced a lot of people to be online who maybe were resistant to it before, right? Mm -hmm. But it has also made us think a lot differently about how we do things. I'm really looking forward to re-engaging our school program in the the fall and, and getting our older adult program going. We had a walking program going on in the hospital for patients who were in the hospital. We had to stop it. So we're, we're really excited about getting re-engaged again. 
Mm-hmm. Now, for people listening to the podcast right now, and you you have effectively got them off the couch, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how do they get involved with the program? What's their first step? Well, they can Google Move for Life, and it'll take them to the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation website, and they can find out more information there. They can go into their local recreation center and get engaged there. They can get engaged at their school if it's a parent with a child. There's lots of points of contact. We've been a little bit on pause for a while, so we're starting to emerge again. And I just wanted to give another shout out again to uh, to the hospital. We Through the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation and the Move for Life Project, um, we've been able to bring a movement program into long-term care at the lodge at, at the hospital. And right. Really, Don Benson, who's one of the co-directors of the hospital, was a was a real guide around really helping out these people who've been isolated for so long and in a tough spot. So uh, we're excited that we were able to deliver that program uh, during mm. during COVID. And as you said, it, it's just not a uh, the usual type of program that a hospital foundation would uh, help sponsor. So. Props to them. Big time props to them. And, mm. and when you talk to Stephanie Beck, the executive director, I mean, one of the things she says very clearly is, you know, we do focus on the traditional things of a hospital foundation. But one of the things we're doing as well, investing in the community is to actually try and keep people out of the hospital. Again, kudos to them for that forward thinking. Well, Drew Mitchell, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. I'm going to go jump on my bike now and go <laughs> go for a ride and get healthy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Wayne. Really appreciate the opportunity. Always innovating, always changing with the times. The story of the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation has many chapters. This podcast sheds light on why keeping active at a young age well into our senior years is so important. We're thrilled to bring you this story. Innovation comes to life in so many ways at the Peace Arch Hospital Foundation. Discovery. The radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.